August 8, 1975. Pat and I are on a tour bus in Jerusalem with a number of Americans, most of us Mennonite Anabaptists. It's a tour sponsored by Eastern Mennonite Seminary, led by a late PVM seer, Old Testament professor G. Irvin Lehman and his wife, Verna. It was a five-week tour of the Middle East and Anabaptist history sites. We're sitting near the back of the bus on the left side. Those are details that are totally irrelevant, except they represent where were you when you heard? Like remembering exactly where you were when hearing the awful news of the assassination of President Kennedy or watching the two planes fly into the Twin Towers on 9-11 or seeing the Challenger space shuttle blow up in January of 1986. Okay, I, I realize that some of you are far too young to remember any of these things and you're just reading about them in the history books, but some of us actually experienced that. Now don't ask us where we were when we heard Robert E. Lee surrender to Ulysses Grant. <laughs> so what happened on August 8, 1975? Our local tour guide, a Jewish leader took the bus microphone to report that President Nixon had just announced his resignation. And on the one hand, that announcement was not particularly surprising. For the entire previous year, I had one year between college and seminary. I had a job that allowed me to listen to the Watergate hearings every day. I must say that this current world situation feels like deja vu all over again. Nixon would have been impeached had he not decided to resign after pressure from members of his own party, and the fact that he resigned wasn't necessarily a big surprise, but what was a surprise to me was my immediate emotional reaction. My country is in crisis. We're traveling in a foreign country I am an American. This feels out of control. American presidents don't resign. And irony of ironies, having those experiences just literally blocks from where Jesus walked. Within seconds, I was viscerally aware that my nationalistic instincts ran much deeper than I was intellectually willing to acknowledge. It's an uncomfortable but all too common reality for followers of Jesus, claiming particular beliefs only to be overridden by deep-seated emotions, as the psychologists would say, driven by the amygdala of the brain. So what does Nixon's resignation nearly 50 years ago have to do with World Communion Sunday? I'd guess that correlation isn't immediately obvious, but there is a point, at least in my mind. We've all been warned that in polite company there are two topics that should never be discussed, politics and religion. And that may be true at the hair salon or the coffee shop, but we're in church, where those two topics cannot be avoided. 
but now I can imagine some of you are getting a little bit uncomfortable and the blood pressure might need to be measured. Politics in church? Has the preacher lost his mind? Maybe. We who claim to be followers of Jesus in the Anabaptist tradition wrestle with the question of national loyalty and appropriate expressions of patriotism vis-a-vis -vis our citizenship in the worldwide body of Christ. We could wish that this is a tension that's only something to read about in the history books. Unfortunately for many of us in the U.S., it's a tension that barely registers among all the challenges of daily life. We hear the slogans daily. American exceptionalism. America first. God and country. God and country and guns. White Christian nationalism. Don't tread on me. And as some would say, we need to get back to being the Christian nation that our founders intended. It's an irony of ironies. The descendants of immigrants, many of us, who came in search of religious freedom would advocate for the kind of theocracy we decry in other countries around the world. One would think that members of a religious minority, such as Anabaptists, would be hypersensitive to the experience of other minority groups. It's enough to make our heads spin. For those whose ancestors were forcibly transported from Africa as slaves, there's yet another layer of complexity, as there is for the indigenous population that was here long before America was discovered. Admittedly, this unholy alliance of God and country is not unique to those of us who are citizens of the U.S., just 80 years ago, a few more than 80 years ago, Christians in Germany faced a very similar conflict. A relatively small number chose to claim Jesus as Lord, but many more chose to pledge allegiance to Hitler. And sadly, some of those who refused to confront Hitler's atrocities were Anabaptists, or at least Anabaptist in theory. We could wish that the scourge of Nazism had died with the end of World War II, but we'd be naive to overlook some obvious indications that's not the case. Just this week I read that one expert said that there is $100 million a year spent in this country alone to purchase Nazi memorabilia at auctions. And just two years ago, a watch that was purported to have been worn by Hitler was sold at an auction for $1.1 million. And I dare say the person was anonymous, so I'm guessing he didn't buy it, or she, didn't buy it for the purpose of trashing it. We've all heard it said many times, there's no place for politics in the church, and at one level that's true. The laws in this country are clear. Nonprofit organizations are theoretically not permitted to advocate for particular candidates for any political office, but it's a law that is regularly ignored by some on both ends of the political spectrum. At another level, 
The call to keep politics out of the church is theologically impossible. Every one of us who's been baptized as followers of Jesus have chosen to declare Jesus is Lord. And we'd be hard pressed, I think, to locate a more blatantly clear political statement. Nothing is more political. To whom will we pledge allegiance? Caesar or Jesus? It's not a hypothetical question. And the answer to that question has real life daily implications. So my thesis is that as followers of Jesus, we pledge allegiance not to whatever country it is we happen to live in. We don't pledge allegiance to a Republican or a Democrat. And in my understanding, that pertains no matter what the country of one's temporary residence, whether that's Japan or Honduras or Kenya. And to be sure, precisely how that's expressed in our daily lives may differ among us. There's a reason that we don't display the U.S. flag in our worship space. And I know it's a sensitive topic among churches in the context of our current polarities. Several years ago, one of the most famous Mennonite conflict mediators who has worked internationally for decades told me that his most intense mediation was a local congregation's discussion about removing the American flag from their sanctuary. Amazingly, it was a congregation in the Mennonite tradition. Now, you may not know much about flag etiquette. I don't know a whole lot about it either, but I do know this, that the Christian flag is always to be placed on the left side of the speaker with the priority being given to the national flag. And you never allow the Christian flag to be above the national flag. Brian Zant, in his Postcards from Babylon, if we make security our most cherished value, euphemistically referred to in America as freedom, we conspire with the principalities and powers to keep the world a dark place, but when in solidarity with Jesus, we are willing to risk our safety for the sake of Christ-like love, we are the light of the world, a city that cannot be hid. So it seems to me that reading the Bible from a position of enormous privilege should begin from a stance of deep humility, at minimum, recognizing that we have pledged allegiance to a poor Middle Eastern Jew, not a well-heeled middle or upper-class first world leader. There's a new book coming out called A Theological Biography about Walter Brueggemann by Mennonite sociologist Conrad Kanagi. Walter Brueggemann has written more than 100 books over the past 50 years. And he says this, the God of the Bible is an emancipator. Starting with the Exodus narrative underscored by prophets like Jeremiah who persistently defended the poor and the marginalized. If we only read the text from a position of privilege, we are totally missing the point, which is exactly the root of the so-called prosperity gospel. In just a couple minutes, we're going to celebrate 
the Eucharist on World Communion Sunday. And I invite us to observe the Lord's Supper in solidarity with brothers and sisters around the world. For us in the U.S., it could be well understood as an act of civil disobedience, unlikely as that may seem. That's not to say that we don't value and appreciate freedom of religion. It's not to denigrate love of one's homeland, but it is to declare public that our allegiance to Jesus supersedes our allegiance to any country. For God so loved the world. So I invite us to share communion this morning with the words of John the Revelator in mind that were read for us a few minutes ago, and they're printed in the bulletin. It's a vision of multinationalism, multi-languages, gathering as one body, celebrating our common humanity. And in preparation for sharing the bread and cup on this World Communion Sunday, I invite us to corporately declare our allegiance to Jesus. It's printed in the bulletin and it's on the screen, written by June Alleman Yoder and J. Nelson Crable when they were faculty member and president respectively at Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminary. Together, I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ and to God's kingdom for which he died, one spirit-led people the world over, indivisible, with love and justice for all. Amen.